Matt Dragonstone and welcome to this episode of the Dragonstone podcast. If you're a fan of the podcast and you've listened to previous episodes, you'll know that I like to mention my kids and my partner at least once every episode. So today's topic of discussion is not only very uh, personally interesting to me, it's also something that I think is quite important actually when it comes to discussions of masculinity and also of fatherhood generally. So I I really looked forward to today's episode and had a lot of fun recording it. Today I'm speaking with Curtis Murphy. Curtis is a Canadian men's worker, though as we'll hear, that term is uh, a little bit fraught. Uh, But nonetheless, it's something that we can use to roughly identify the type of work that Curtis does. Specifically, Curtis works with fathers and with men who are undergoing the process of becoming fathers and also men who have been fathers for quite some time. Curtis's approach is super duper interesting to me personally and I'm hoping to you as well because Curtis brings an alchemical lens to this particular topic as well as a permaculture lens and a new thought lens and the result is a really interesting way of looking at masculinity and fatherhood. So without any further ado, I'll jump straight into the conversation. Yeah, no, absolutely. All right. So I'm joined by Curtis Murphy today. Hello, Curtis. Thanks for, for coming on the show. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Um, well, you know, I'm, I, I'm struggling to kind of define how to, how to describe you professionally. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and I want to just sort of lead in with alchemical dad, uh, cause I think that's a, that's a rad term. And, um, you know, <laughs> I might, I might hand it over to you to sort of describe, uh, what it is that you do and where you're kind of coming from, um, in terms yeah. of the work that you're doing. For sure. Yeah. Thank you. So basically, I work with men, especially fathers, on the basis of the hermetic axiom of as above, so below. So basically, the idea that all aspects of ourselves and our lives are reflections of each other in a holographic sense, and that anything can potentially be a starting point for a process of transformation. And the key assumption that I have is that we're always already in the midst of transformative processes, So we're seeking to participate more consciously and more responsibly in those transformative processes. And in that work, I draw on an understanding of masculine archetypes, new thought, permaculture, ancestral healing, and hermeticism. That's kind of my, my shtick. That's, um, that's really interesting. I I cannot wait to get into, you know, the nuts and bolts, but, um, I suppose before we sort of get too deep, um, I guess I want to get an understanding of uh, what type of men come to see you and what type of work do you, what what are the goals basically of coming to work with you? Yeah. I mean, the goal is in the basic sense is just to participate consciously in that process of transformation. And I, I felt drawn to work, especially with fathers just because it's, ah, I just, that's just where my heart is for fathers and kids and families. And I do work with other men, you know, it's not a, it's not an exclusive thing. And I, mm. I do also love when I have the opportunity to work with younger men I have this idea that I want to be the type of person that I wish I had in my twenties and early thirties and stuff, um, or late teens for that matter. But that, that sense of, a, of an older, not that old, but a, a guy who's been through some stuff, who's landed on his feet, 
uh, who like to think has some wisdom to share and just to be in, to be in someone's corner. That's really what it is for me. You're a dad, you're a man, you're, you're, you're kind of out there in the ring. I want to be in your corner. That's, that's kind of where I start from. Yeah. Nice one, mate. Nice one. I'm just, I'm mindful that, that you and I kind of roughly of a similar age and we're both, we're both dads. So there's a lot that I think goes unsaid in terms of, um, (laughs) you know, I'm nodding my head the whole time you're describing your approach, but, uh, you know, I find that, you know, fatherhood and and masculinity, um, remain both quite fraught concepts these days Mm -hmm. compared to, you know, um, uh, women's studies, women's work, and obviously issues around motherhood. That seems to get a lot of um, traction. That seems to get a lot of mm. airtime. And I'm not sort of saying that for any other reason than it seems to me that women are more willing to be open in discussing, you know, issues that they may be having in terms of mm. being women and also being mothers. And men sort of probably in order to define themselves, kind of push themselves to the other end of the spectrum almost yeah. unconsciously. That's been my experience anyway. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of wondering what your perspective is on that, given that, you know, men tend to sort of still struggle with that strong, silent archetype, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah. It's funny, you know, as you're talking about it being fraught and everything, I think I sometimes maybe forget how fraught it is or just not even fraught, just how unusual it is because I've been doing it for so long. It's such a normal part of how I think and what I do that, I, you know, I've been, been doing what you could call men's work for, you know, I'm 38 years old, but for, for 20 years, you know, and, and been through many different, seen different trends in the broader culture and uh, different, different conceptions of gender and how that plays out and just seen a lot of things come and go and still just be doing my thing and connecting with other men because that's what feels good. And that's what feels right. And I, I just had that, that draw to, to connect with men and to have spaces where men can connect with each other. I think there's, you know, there, I guess there's such a stereotype of the, you know, the locker room or the boardroom. And like, these are the places where men can be men, you know, but, Mm. but that's such a narrow and, and, you know, often those places are maybe not the healthiest. Sometimes they can be, but at, at any rate, it's still such a narrow bandwidth of what's possible and what's out there. And Mm. to, to um yeah to have spaces where men can support and challenge each other and one of my key insights over the years is that the support and the challenge are the same thing that that is part of how men love each other is by challenging each other and part of how we challenge each other is by loving each other and it's it's really beautiful when it happens when it clicks and when when men can sit across from each other increasingly, you know, virtually as is the case for better or worse and really see each other and honor each other and recognize each other warts and all. And that's just, I think that's medicine in and of itself, almost regardless of where you take it from there, but it's a great starting place to, to, um, to just enter into that space and recognize that it's possible. And I think a lot of men have a sense of, wow, I've been missing something when that connection kind of comes online. Yeah, no, I, I totally get it. And um, 
I guess, you know, just talking about challenging, right? Like uh, one of the defining characteristics and, and, you know, even sort of um, trying to navigate this for the purposes of discussion is difficult. But one of the the things that I think differentiates um, men or male identifying people from women or female identifying people is the relationship to challenge. Because the, the examples mm. that you're giving about the locker room, the boardroom, um, you know, in Australia, and I'm assuming in Canada as well, it's the pub or the, the bar, you know, these traditionally mm. masculine places do leave a lot of space for challenge. Um, but that challenge is quite often toxic, um, you know, mm. when, when you sort of think about it. And as a result, Absolutely. there's a kind of problematization of, of men's spaces as being kind of dangerous, either physically yes. dangerous because that's where men feel like they can express that side of themselves um, or, you know, sort of theoretically or emotionally dangerous spaces mm-hmm. because of the risk factors attached. Um, I'm sure. wondering just in your 20 years of work um, how, you know, you've observed that maybe changing or not. When I think back 20 years, it's it doesn't seem that long ago. <laughs> I'm not, saying, I'm not saying I'm Methuselah, but I'm pretty sort of, you know, middle of the middle of the journey, so to speak. And 20 years doesn't seem that long ago, but it does seem quite a long time when you think about the ways in which men and masculinity, you know, have sort of changed, so to speak, or not. What have you observed? Yeah. Yeah, really good question. I mean, I think that relationship to challenge is really the, the idea that there's such a thing as a healthy, nourishing, nurturing form of challenge and challenge as a form of nurturing is I think new to a lot of people. Um, and this idea that a lot of the challenge or conflict or competition tends to be, I'm going to cut you down. Right. You know, even just teenage humor, I can think back to my teenagehood and guys just like joking about each other and insulting each other and making sarcastic comments that just to cut each other down. And, in a, and we were friends, you know, let alone in, in other settings and what I think differentiates the, like, I think that's kind of the shadow side of how men can challenge and compete each other with each other. But the other side of it is this, I am challenging you to strengthen and refine you. And that's where we get into that alchemical dimension, right? That this is a, this is a process of refining and strengthening and clarifying and, and stripping away the things that, that are maybe holding you down. And then, so you emerge stronger. So the idea is I'm not challenging you so I can overcome you or dominate you or be you. I am challenging you so that I can have the satisfaction of seeing you thrive more. And then you're going to do the same thing for me. And that's, yeah, to me, that's the essence of healthy masculine challenge. Nice. Yeah, really nice. Just on the topic of alchemy, I mean, you're you're studying herbal alchemy and medical astrology at the moment. would you define yourself as an alchemist or, you know, somebody with an intense interest in alchemy as a process? Let's go with yes. You know, I, yeah. I, I, nice. I, I'm not a board certified alchemist yeah, yet. I don't have the, you know, the, the certificate on the wall if there is such a thing. Um, but, but I think yes, because I think to be an alchemist, I'm certainly an apprentice alchemist at least to someone who undertakes that journey and that transformation and yes there is the practical side of working with plants or other metals or other materials but but i think at one time i was talking about the alchemy of the self as kind of a metaphor or that you know take you know instead of working with metals we're working on the self and it's a metaphor but i don't think it's a metaphor at all i think alchemy is a universal process it's a feature of nature and so and it has different dimensions it can be worked 
uh, what they call spagyrics with plants. It can be worked with metals and it can be worked on the self, but it's the same thing. It's, you know what I mean? It's not a metaphor of something else. It is the same profit process happening internally in the context of ourselves and our lives. Perfect. I mean, when, when I think of alchemy, um, and I have a I have a passing interest in alchemy, nowhere near the sort of depth of knowledge that that you would possess. But when I when I think of alchemy, right, I think of um, the process of transforming lead into gold. Um, so when I think about how historically alchemists have been represented, it's always in a laboratory and always, you know, yes. um, in search of the philosopher's stone, in search of the magic process that will transmute lead into gold. Um, but I, I guess, you know, when it comes to work on the self or work with others, um, the same principles seem to apply, right? There's, there seems to be a process that you can use that will transform uh, base, you know, sort of material into something quite precious and refined. Mm-hmm. Um, does, that, does that sort of describe loosely what your approach would be or is there something more nuanced in there or how does it sound? I think it sounds good. Yeah, that I guess it was maybe Carl Jung who kind of popularized the idea that, oh, the true alchemy is the transformation of the self and all this, all this work with, with turning lead into gold is actually, that's the metaphor for the real alchemy, which is the alchemy of the self and the soul. But, but um, yes, that process of refining and, and bringing out the true nature of something. It's not, it's not only a matter of improving or turning it into something else. It's becoming the full essence of what it already is unencumbered and i believe that each person has that perfect man yeah nice one so when we think about challenge for instance in the ways in which we typically encounter that as men in society um you know definitely for me it seems quite leaden it seems quite heavy it seems quite unrefined and you know often that Mm. sort of plays into a really negative stereotype of masculinity that we're all sort of struggling to transform collectively. The men who come and see you and the men that you work with, do you find that there's similar aspects in terms of what their understanding of masculinity is and what they're trying to embody that is problematic, that has that leaden quality to it, that has that unrefined heaviness Mm. that's problematic? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think there's probably a few there's a few main currents in the experience that that men have had of what masculinity is and even to to think that maleness and masculinity and you know those not necessarily being the same thing but but those principles as something that we would want to or even could engage with as something that that could be changed or transformed that you you almost have to start with the question of you know what is masculinity or um, what does it mean to be masculine? Do I even want that? Is that something that I should want? And I think, so I think that these different currents, there's maybe men who are a little bit older than me in my dad's generation or something like that, who very much had that, I guess, yeah, whatever the kind of macho, don't cry, whatever that sort of thing is. Mm. And they, and I've been in men's spaces with, with some of these men, especially, you know, when I was younger and for them, it's this revelation to emotions talk about how you feel and just hug another man is just like whoa deep you know yeah. and and certainly i can relate to that to a certain extent that that current or that 
that stereotype is certainly very much alive and active and it impacts us all to various degrees. But I certainly feel like I grew up much more in the, you know, the eighties and nineties, early two thousands, you know, sensitive and, you know, not be macho and masculinity was mostly a list of things you should not be, or you should not do. So, Mm. and I think where I kind of started from this place as a teenager was kind of like, well, what am I supposed to do in the sense of, in spite (laughs) of everything, in spite of what I've been told, in spite of, of uh, so many experiences I've had in spite of going to an arts high school that had seven girls for every boy, I was like, I actually feel like a man. I actually feel masculine and I, I don't know what to do with that. So that was kind of, I was looking for orientation in that. And this is something that I, that I do believe, and I know it can lead into bigger and potentially more controversial topics in terms of social construction of gender and where we even get some of these ideas and that you know that's probably its own its own podcast but Mm. but to me there is there is something that that a person can feel and this can go for your male female transgender a certain sense of this is who i am and yes of course it's shaped socially but on some level i have a certain essence that 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 needs to be honored and needs to be worked with and so i started looking for something that you could call non-toxic masculinity right like I'm always curious, how often do you even hear the phrase masculinity without the preface toxic masculinity? Does anyone even say that in, you know, in, in mainstream media or culture? And I don't think very often. And, you know, I used to have a bit more of a chip on my shoulder about that. And now it just, it is what it is. I, you know, I'm doing my work and I really want to, anyone who's asking those questions and who, who wants to, to orient towards a healthy healthy masculine archetype or a set of healthy masculine archetypes i want to help with that process of orientation because there's there you know there's material there's models there are we just most of us i think it's fair to say haven't had that many lived embodied men there's lots of great men there's lots of great people but to say that man in his masculinity is very inspiring to me or very Mm -hmm. nourishing to me is not something that that um that, that I think a lot of a lot of men my age or of, of many ages in our society have experienced. And I think when we do experience it in little drips and drops, there's something about it that that comes alive in us and that I've seen come alive in other men. And I think that's really important for healing culturally and collectively. Yeah, definitely. Look, I mean, you know, the, you, you don't sort of go through a process of transformation and refinement without struggle and challenge mm-hmm. and you know suffering to a certain extent right there's a there's a lot of anguish that i see mm-hmm. locked up in men um and yeah. also in the male experience generally and just to your point where you know i i dig it like i don't often hear uh masculinity without the the added toxic associated with it and a lot of the critiques of masculinity that have emerged into you know the social discourse over the past decade or so um, have a really sort of solid and valid foundation. Um, for sure. For me, I, I went to an arts high school as well. I went to a performing <laughs> arts high school. Oh, yeah. um, but the town that I grew up in, Newcastle, it's it's a it's a steel mill kind of coal right. mining town. Um, the the version of masculinity that is predominant you know, in that space is highly toxic, um, mm. f- full of literal heavy metals, um, you know, mm. just by virtue of the <laughs> of the work right. that's done there. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, my journey of sort of uh, relating to my own masculinity has been fraught. There's been a lot of challenge and a lot of the men that I know from not only that 
that sort of uh, time and place, but also, you know, just in the other areas that I've, you know, lived and worked in, there's still that process of refinement that's going on. And so when I think about this through an alchemical lens, um, two of the processes that I'm familiar with in terms of alchemy, in order to break things down into their component parts and refine them, um, are calcination and, mm-hmm. um, you know, and dissolution. <laughs> yes, right? yes. And both of those kind of, they're, they're juxtaposed, right? So when you think about the process of calcining something, um, you just smash it with fire, right? And you burn mm-hmm. it until you burn, burn away all the other shit. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then if you were looking to dissolve something that's incredibly watery, um, quite a lot of the men that I know who go through processes of transformation specifically within the context of their masculinity, um, they tend to prefer a calcination approach. They want the crucible, they want the fire mm. versus the, the watery dissolution of the self through the medium of emotion. Um, you know, it's six of one, half a dozen of the other from what I've observed in terms of effects, mm-hmm. but quite often the, the, the thought of entering into a water-based relationship to the mm-hmm. self, talking about the emotions, possibly God forbid crying and even worse crying in front of other men. Um, you know, that's something mm-hmm. that's, you know, men, I think men are kind of aquaphobic <laughs> in a sense. <laughs> right? now, that, now that's something that. You'd definitely be unpacked again. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Huh. Calcination over dissolution, as you're almost saying that that for many men that sort of feels more comfortable or less threatening. Yeah, I am. Like, let's let's take some popular examples. Um, like when we think about film, right, and cinema as, you know, one of the main ways in which masculine archetypes are sort of projected to us in order to internalize and kind of normalize our behavior. Um, I think of a lot of the, the typical hero's journey narratives as involving tremendous amounts of fire. Um, so mm, think explosions about and yeah, lasers. Explosions and, right, right, right. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Right. Let's take um, let's take Die Hard, right? <laughs> I haven't seen. Story. I'm not a big movie guy. So oh, like, mate! You have to lie to me. Yeah. Oh, look. I mean, yeah. it's it's a pretty typical thing, right? So you've got a hardworking sort of you know um, cop type character that goes through a yeah. series of tremendous um, challenges involving things blowing up, things you know sort of exploding, <laughs> uh, catching on fire, um, suffers a lot of physical. Uh, you know, pain, um, but tends to retain a singular purpose, which is uh, save other people's lives, be glorious, right. sacrifice yourself, um, and allow your sort of hero heroic status to be literally forged right. in a crucible. Yeah? Right. So you've got that. And I just don't tend to see a lot of sort of male-oriented or male-heavy cinema um, that focuses on the man going through an emotional sort of breakdown. You know, a disillusion itself. Mm. You know, so really good, really good question. Um, yeah, what about Aquaman? That's a movie I've I've seen oh, most yeah. of it. I haven't seen the whole thing. Yeah, right. I haven't um, seen it. No, I'm a big fan of Jason Momoa though. Okay. <laughs> okay, it was on. It was playing on an airplane when I was on it. Um, but yeah, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned the hero's journey because, of course, that's whether or not you know people have read the Joseph Campbell book. Like, it's it's a it's an archetype or it's a it's a narrative that a lot of people are familiar with. Mm. And what's really interesting because it is, it does end up being the basis of a lot of 
at least a lot of men's work type offerings are out there is this kind of, you know, so you take the immature youth and then goes through this underworld journey, right? That kind of calcination, I guess. And, and then, you know, in the end, he kind of emerges triumphant and then boom, you're done. But, and, and it's been pointed out that a lot of our myths in cinema, especially they kind of end at after, you know, once the hero has had his big breakthrough, he's saved the people he's done, whatever he's gotten married. But then the kind of the twist on it is that, okay, that's when the real work begins like that, that the hero's journey as a masculine archetype or as a, as a template for what men can do and can go through, like certainly it's powerful. Certainly there's, there's a healthy element to it and maybe it's inevitable, but it's really, it's the first chapter. Um, Cause it doesn't show, it's not, it's not showing him changing the diapers or, or going to work or whatever. Right. It's, and that's where I, that's where the rubber hits the road. And that's maybe where we have a lack of collective imagination where um, for what we can even do and how we can be, be men in, in a more sustainable way. That's not less powerful. That's, that's not necessarily less. Um, that's, that's, that's more powerful. That's more mature, but that has that staying power that has that sustainability to use a, I guess a hackneyed term, but that, yeah, that can be in it for the long haul. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, wh- when I'm thinking about those movies, I always imagine that well, I always sort of observe, sorry, that the the hero in those movies never really changes, right? Mm. Um, the external sort of world around the hero changes, but it's always the story of a, a man with a singular mission, um, right. which is, you know, save whatever, save your daughter, save your wife, save the town, etc. Um and the trials that that person goes through, um, you know, really are just challenges to that person sort of, you know, or that man kind of um, triumphing, you know, going through a victorious mm. period of triumph and then just never really deviating from the vision that they have at the beginning of the journey. Right. And I, I love the mm. fact that that's just the first part. Um, mm. Now, stop me if I'm wrong. I think there's like there's a relation between the elements when we think about elemental theory and we're talking about the four classical elements, earth, air, fire and water. Um, it doesn't fire lead to water or is it sort of earth then fire, then water, then um, air or what have you? Or um, I, Earth, ah, you know, you're st- you stunned me there. I think of um, you kind of stunned me there. Which one leads to which? I'm not a. I'm not going to try and answer that because I'm going to. I'm going to muddle it up. No, no, that's but certainly okay. there is. There is this this way that they lead into each other for sure. Mm. In the in like let's thinking about spagyrics, right? So you take yeah. sort of the the plant matter, and it's a process of refining through calcination and dissolution, and then recombining. Um, but you would take the calcined salts of a plant. Um, or you would take the calcine salts of a material and then you'd, you'd dissolve that again. Dissolve it again in the, in the liquid medium, yes. Yeah, yeah. And I just think that... Right, you know, so in that sense, fire, the fire leads, back, leads you back to the water. Yep, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's just that we don't get shown that in a lot of sort of cinema and we don't get shown that, I suppose, in a lot of the ways in which the masculine archetype is kind of presented to us. It's almost as if masculinity begins and ends with triumph externally rather than kind of going through that inner process of transformation. We don't see Bruce Willis or Arnold Schwarzenegger or Sylvester Stallone um, suddenly realizing that they've caused tremendous amounts of death and carnage (laughs) and and then just going through that big breakdown. We don't see the tears usually. 
And who would direct that movie? And I guess who would watch it? But I, I would pay yeah. to see it if it was Arnold Schwarzenegger, for sure. Yeah, yeah. For sure. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Like, kind of like you said earlier about, you know, choosing calcination, this process of this fire-based process of transformation or this water-based process of transformation. And that maybe you could you could choose the fire-based process and then be like, surprise, bait and switch, got to go to the water one now anyway. Yeah. And then, you know, then get filtered out. And there's... There's yeah, there's there's layers of refinement to this, um, and there's a, there's a kind of a there's a spiral there's a spiral nature of spiraling back through the same things, um, in a different way and a different stage. Yeah, it's just um, like a, a lot of the, just thinking about the ways in which I've seen men transform. Right, um, you know, the preference for the calcination. Um, and the trial by fire and the triumph over external challenge, um, you know, that, that will always inevitably lead to some sort of watery emotional sort of integration, yeah, but that's mm -hmm. never really broadcast. And you can't, yeah. I, I don't think you can talk about masculinity and, and men without discussing ego, yeah? Um, mm, and sure. I just think that ego is a fiery being, Yeah. Ego as a, I sometimes think of ego as an airy being. Oh, do you? Okay, cool. cool. Question. Um, yeah, not an earthy being. Mm -hmm. Not a yeah, not a watery being. I, I maybe think of maybe yeah, air in the sense of being a bit, a bit evasive. Um, but um, hmm, ego as a fiery being. That's I'm gonna have to think about that one. No, I'm gonna have to think about ego as an airy being now. Like I never really. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, I know something that came up recently in my studies, this idea that, you know, the, the fifth element, the, the quintessence kind of, and that mm. in most in the so-called Eastern alchemical traditions in, you know, an Ayurvedic tradition or a Chinese tradition, mm. there, there are five elements. But the, in the Western tradition, there's four elements and there's sort of a fifth, but the fifth one's kind of secret. And that's the, so that's when we don't kind of talk about that so much, the, you know, we know it's there. And that how that kind of led to Western alchemy and then eventually Western chemistry and Western science becoming much more materialistic and reductionistic because the spirit, for whatever reason, I'll take it back to the Greeks or something, was not as explicit as what it was not the five elements. It was like the four elements and the bonus, like the, the other Ghostbuster who comes in sometimes and and yeah. and uh, but it's not really part of the main crew. And and um, so kind of and a lot of these practices are about bringing that back in, bringing mm. that bringing that spirit back into the material, back into the, the other elements consciously. Do you, do you find that the men who come and see you and the men that you're working with, um, they, what is the process of recognizing the quintessence? As in how, how do men kind of come to that realization typically? Because a lot of the ones that, I mean, myself included, right? A lot of um, the time it's quite easy to get uh, caught up in identifying with the four elements. For me, it's fire and mm. earth, you know, right. um, occasionally water. But, uh, you know, there's, there's just a difficulty recognizing the quintessence there. Mm. What is the process of recognizing the quintessence? I mean, I think part of it is seeing it reflected back to you in other people. I think that's a really big part of it, that maybe in some level we, we can't discover it purely for ourselves or by ourselves. And that we come, that men come into men's spaces, whether it's one-on-one -on -one or in a group, with the sense of that something, looking for that something that they can't quite articulate. And, 
and needing to need to find it there. And I think seeing also that as men, we are not only what we do, there's that, you know, the doing and being tension, if you will, that I don't think is, I don't think that's inevitably, you know, a tension or a paradox, but somehow in our culture, we've made that into this, into a paradox and that, you know, and there is this idea in, in, um, in hermetic traditions that you know the masculine principle is the active principle and that the, that's always doing right um and you know it's really interesting actually you're making me dig back into you know layers of, of this stuff and how that yeah for maybe for an older generation of men or uh, or all of us to some extent that becoming more whole was like getting in touch with my feminine side right or that that, that yeah. men's the healing of men is discovering your femininity and it's kind of funny. I mean, there's, there's truth to that. I mean, again, you get into like how we define masculine and feminine and, and all that. But I think that there's this other piece of, um, that, 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 you know, in hermetic tradition, those are the, those are the two poles of the, that's what makes the battery work. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that they both have to be online in a strong way within each individual and within the collective. And so that, the, that you can't even really discover your feminine side without discovering your masculine side, so to speak as well. The language is so clunky. Um, and I think this is part of what, what makes it fraught is it's hard to even talk about these things without, without getting into language that feels just stereotypical or, you know, dualistic or just, just clunky. And just the language itself is, is, we hear these terms and we think we know what they mean. And like, oh yeah, I never, that's, so we don't then, we don't go where we need to go because we, we're still developing the language. And I like to think, and I would imagine that in 20, 30 years, 50 years, that there's a more refined vocabulary around some of these things. And, and part of the alchemical process we might be undergoing as a society is, is developing that vocabulary. That's interesting. I, I, I like the idea of, you know, and I remember this too. It's like get in touch with your feminine side. That was such a mantra, like yeah. um, you know, twenty years ago, fifteen years ago. Yes. Um, and I, I like the idea of you know recognizing quintessence by seeing it reflected back to you because the process for me when I was kind of emerging into an idea of my adult masculine self was literally get in touch with your feminine side hang out with a bunch of women. Do you know what I mean? Like have that sort of experiential um, exposure mm -hmm. to, uh, you know, more sort of feminine identifying people and then somehow recognize, you know, that that is a quality that you have within yourself. It's not necessarily, mm. um, you know, for the purposes of exposition, it's necessary to think about it in terms of having a feminine side, like an anima mm -hmm. or something mm -hmm. along those lines. Um, but, you know, I, I think personally there's just something that transcends biological gender that's that's sort of there. And if you have something you recognize and can only describe, um, you know, in counterpoint to your sort of masculine self as a feminine self, that's cool. But maybe that thing that sort of transcends language is that that difficult to define fifth element. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, I mean, it's it, it, it's just really interesting, I think, that having that reflected back to you has so far been sort of exposure to um, you know, something more feminine as in more womanly. And, and that was the way in which you kind of go about integrating that part of yourself. It's just, it's interesting. Yeah. yeah. yeah you know, you made me think of this, of this phrase and you know, it's not kind of catchphrase, but I think there's something to it that, 
women give birth to boys, men give birth to men. And that this process of, and, and, and I think that that can sound like it's negating mothers and women. I, I don't mean that at all, but the sense of to, to become a man, to see yourself and experience yourself as a mature man has to be through the loving eyes of other men. And I've seen that happen over and over again, usually in groups of, of just, just men being seen. It's like, it's okay. We can see you. We really can. And you can just drop, you can just drop some of that, whatever your bullshit is. Yeah. And there's, again, there's no trouble like calling each other on your bullshit, but it's, it's more just like, get the bullshit out of the way and let us really see you. And, and it's beautiful. It's, there's so much beauty in that. Um, you know, even beauty as a masculine quality, it's, I have this memory of from when I was really little, I was with uh, my cousin, an older cousin, he's 10, 15 years older than me. And forget where we were in Banff, like a big national park in Canada or something. And we were all on top of a mountain. I was nine, I was nine or 10 years old. And he just looked out and said, man, that's so beautiful. And I didn't even know that a man would use the word beautiful. Like it literally struck me in that moment. I didn't know you could use that word as a man. Like that's not, you wouldn't say that looks nice. It looks good. I like it. But that is really beautiful to say that about a landscape there. It really touched me in that moment. Maybe that sounds super corny and it just speaks to just how, I don't know, maybe how far I've come or how far we've come collectively, but but it really struck me. It was not something that was in my experience up to that point. And I didn't by any means grow up in like a super macho environment either. I just think it was not, it was not part of the vocabulary. Like how it got started with that, but, but yeah, you made me think of it. No, no, I've I, I got similar memories too, right? Where the first time I, I heard a man describe something as beautiful or heard a man use what had been until that point feminine language, um, mm-hmm. that changed my idea of what was acceptable behaviour for men. Mm-hmm. And I really yes. dig that that phrase, women give birth to boys and men give birth to men. Um, mm-hmm. Because, you know, I, I think so much of the you know, some, so much of the kind of unrefined, leaden, toxic masculinity, so to speak, and the critiques yeah. of that that come to us are that men are too hierarchical, that mm-hmm. there's, you know, there's this sort of big alpha dominance kind of right. you know, dynamic in there. Um, and, you know, to a certain extent that's true and to a certain extent I think that's naturally part of a masculine approach to being is to kind of recognise hierarchy, but there's a shit version, which is that kind of the one that we have to deal with in the locker room or the boardroom most of the time. And then there's the version that's initiatory in a different sense, which is that, yeah, men give birth to men, like to have sort of an older man that you respect um, show you that it's okay to be poetic, that it's okay to have feelings, right, to kind of introduce (laughs) that watery... (laughs) <laughs> aqua vitae, so to speak, um, you know, that's something that can totally change and give you permission to feel not so uptight, to kind of balance out the elemental structure within you. Yeah, it's just a really interesting thing to think about. And, yeah, I've got so many memories just like that where there was a time when I would think of myself as other until a man who I respected would demonstrate you know, behaviors or have opinions that I was problematizing within myself. And then that was like, okay, you've got permission now. You can be that if you want to. Right. Yeah. That giving permission to just be more of yourself. Um, that's really huge. 
I, I love it when I have the opportunity to offer that to another person, whether it's a man, you know, in a, in a group or in a one-on-one setting, or just, just to anyone to be like, yeah, you, you can just be, you can be you, you can be more of yourself. It's good. There's space for that. I think that's really, that's really cool. I mean, it's, it's a really heteronormative, um, perspective on masculinity, right? Because there's this, you know, this polarization within sort of, um, cisgendered heteronormative, um, kind of masculinity, which is that acceptable behaviors, uh, are very strictly defined, very narrowly defined and unacceptable masculine behaviors get branded. And I'm sure you had the same experience as me growing up in the eighties and nineties, anything that was bad. Oh, that's gay. You're gay. No, that's gay. Oh, you know, yes. You're a gay lord. You know what I mean? Like things oh like God. that. And it's it's cringy thinking back at it. It's so cringy. And it's it's yeah. fucking ridiculous. <laughs> and thank God we've grown out of it as a, as a society. But, you know, there's, there's a specific quality of largely kind of a hetero masculinity that I think, you know, possibly is is the, the, the bulk of the kind of clients that you're working with, specifically with dads, right? Because most of the dads that I know these days are, you know, um, male identifying and hetero identifying. And that's a shard, like a very small sort of section of, of masculine experience that not only needs the work, but is also highly problematized. Um, and just thinking about the, the the thing that you've just sort of brought up, the saying, you know, women give birth to boys, men give birth to men, and the way in which you kind of qualified that by saying, oh, you know, that's not to cast shade on mothers and femininity. Um, it was a mother that kind of opened um, a, a much broader kind of spectrum of, of heteromasculine experience to me, which was my partner. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and, and we're both dads, right? And we've both got young right. kids. And, yeah. you know, if there's, there's nothing sort of, um, no quicker route towards water for me versus fire than witnessing the birth of your child and then having mm. to kind of be an emotional being, you know what I mean? Mm. Yes, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> yeah. I mean, I think there's, I mean, this stuff just goes in cycles. So you could say what women give birth to boys and men give birth to men and I mean, children give birth to dads. Like that's, I said that to my son. It's like, you made me a dad. I wasn't, a, I wasn't a dad. No one called me dad until I had you, yep. you know? And we, we have a, I have a five-year-old and another on the way, but just that is calling for at the bottom of the stairs. No, that's cool, man. <laughs> mom there? Okay, go see mom, okay? I'll be down in a bit. I was just talking about you. And, but yeah, it's like, he used to call me dad. And like, no one ever called me. And he, gets, he gets upset if, if my partner and I call each other by our first names. Like, no, that's not your name. You know, your dad. Yeah. And, but what an incredible thing. Like our children create us as fathers. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that we often, we often lose that, oh, you know, oh, the parents make the child, but the child, they make us parents. And whether, that, whether that's by adoptive parents or whatever, but like with these relationships, the relationships are what constitute us as fathers. So that, work of of um i don't know to be to really honor that to be loyal to that to be worthy of being called dad and 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 saying worthy okay i'm not 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 judging who you know who and what isn't worthy but to just to really hold that as something really sacred that wow like there's this person calls me dad who calls me father and what does that what does that mean what does that ask of me and 
and it's really it's really um uh, it's something to behold it's something really quite awe-inspiring and um and another uh, someone that my my wife works with um said you know i always say our children need us as much sorry we need our children as much as our children need us and that really like that i just feel that so much mm. and yeah i want to I want to live in a way that recognizes that is true because I think it is true and we can get caught up in, in a certain type of self-importance or just being stressed and tired. And, and, and that's such a, that's a, such a key component of this as well is um, just um, what is it to be a dad, to be a father? That's, that's more than the, that includes the protector and provider in a, holistic sense but is also more than that um that's something i'm certainly you know i'm certainly growing into and and um there's a lot of work to be done there oh absolutely yeah mate um and look i mean i, I totally dig the whole uh you know children give birth to fathers thing because i i wish i was um more in touch with a better version of my masculine self when i became a dad um, mm -hmm. Because, you know, when you transition from just a, a non-father non to a father, right, when you step into that father role, um, not only is it instantaneous, yeah, it really mm -hmm. kicks in once the baby's there screaming, right, yeah. in the delivery room, um, but it also throws you back on what your masculine self is beforehand, right? Um, yeah. So, you know, my first kid came around uh, February 2020. What a time to have a baby. <laughs> oh, <God>. um, <laughs> Wow. So there was like immediate challenge. Um, and not only because, you know, uh, the way that my eldest was born was, um, you know, quite sort of difficult. There was an, it was an emergency situation with a cesarean yeah. that wasn't planned. Um, I had to kind of really step into a version of my masculine self. At, at least I thought I had to. Um, which was action-based, which was super fiery, which was, okay, here's a problem. Let's just jump straight into solution mode immediately, um, you know, and to hell with everyone else. The only thing that matters is mm. me and my, my family, my partner and my kid, and I have to be the big protector and I have to sort of be action man. Um, definitely not the right approach on, on mm. reflection, but, but the one that I instinctively thought was appropriate. Um, because I had to knit together an idea of myself as a father kind of quickly. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I just wish that I had uh, probably more of a refined sense of masculinity before I took that next step <laughs> into fatherhood. <laughs> well, we all, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because it was, I mean, it was fiery, I think right? Yeah. I mean, there's something paradoxical there too because I know I certainly had this idea um, you know, my dad's an all right guy, you know, I, but certainly I had a sense of, I want to, I want to be really ready when I have kids, you know, and I had this, mm. this notion, I'm not going to have kids. I'm not going to be a dad till I have my shit like completely together. And, mm. <laughs> you know, <what>? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. And it was, a, it was a source of tension with my partner and I, when we were first together, like a couple years older than me, not a lot, but you know, she really wanted to have kids and had wanted to have kids for a long time. And I'm like, yeah, probably sometime, like maybe when I'm older and more mature and, mm. and, you know, we, we got there, but, um, but, um, I, I just had to accept that I, my shit is as together as it's going to be right now. And there's a certain amount of learning on the job. And I actually really feel like, you know, 
we go back to this alchemical thing. Like my son has forged me as a father. Like I I couldn't have been ready to be his father until I was his father. And there's a certain amount of groundwork. Sure. You know, I think of it like making a building. You have to prepare the site. Maybe it's a toxic dump and you have to do some remediation. (laughs) Right. And you build, maybe you build a foundation, but you can't build the structure before the materials arrive or whatever. It's a clunky metaphor, but I, but I really feel like that. And now as we get ready to have this second kid, I'm like, Oh, holy shit. I have to really be, you know, leveling up even more because now I'm going to have two kids and the, and um, one of my biggest challenges is when there's kind of chaos and cacophony around me when, you know, my wife and son are talking to me at the same time. And so I'm just mm. like, someone's mocking. I'm just like, I just can't, okay, I'm getting ready. We're going to multiply that exponentially. Right. But there's, there's, there's plenty of growing edges that I have, but just to realize, yes, I'm doing what I can to be ready to meet this challenge from as solid a stance as I can. And it's also going to be something that just washes over me and that I fundamentally, this next child is going to be writing or co-writing the next chapter of who I am as a father and my partner together with, with our son. Like we're all going to be creating that, that it, that it's, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a live recording. It's not, it's a, and, and there's, there's parts you wish you'd go back and edit and, and, um, but it's what it is. And, and so really to have that, and this is something that I bring to my work as well is to really have that, that, that lust for transformation and that, uh, you know, that just reaching for the stars kind of thing, but also just this real, really prosaic, like honoring of who we are right now and that it has to, on some level be enough, even if it isn't, Mm. doesn't feel like it is. And, um, and even if, you know, I feel so much this ache to be more, to be better, how we are with that is a huge part of like, that's, to be with that gracefully is, is a gift to our children and to our families. And, um, yeah. Yeah, no, man, I, I dig it a hundred percent. It's, um, you know, in retrospect, yeah, I still believe that I, I, I want to be more sort of ready, but I, I a hundred percent understand what you mean. You can't be a dad until you're a dad. You can't, yeah. you can't build the building until the materials arrive. That's a fantastic <laughs> analogy, man. I love it. I love it. <laughs> um, and, you know, I mean, I, I dig it too, right? I was forged as well. Like I was forged into, into the, the, the sort of, um, form of a father, but a lot of the, um, a lot of the unacceptable parts of myself that, you know, specifically as dads, right, we need to, or at least with my experience, right, I had to learn how to tone it down. Um, I've got two daughters, okay, and I, obviously my partner is a woman. Um, so I'm living in a pretty watery environment, right? right. Not just astrologically, my partner's um, <laughs> double water, my first daughter, double water. Um, thankfully my second daughter is air and fire. So there's a little Mm. bit, you know, a little bit of, you know, alchemical balance sort of happening. Yeah. Um, but I was way too fiery in the beginning, not just because of the circumstances in which I became a dad, which was challenging. It was the pandemic. It was, um, you know, the, the birth didn't go exactly as we planned, et cetera. Um, but also just by virtue of the, the version of my masculine self that I brought into fatherhood. So, there was definitely a fiery forging in the crucible of experience. Yep. Externally wise, a hundred percent. I was very proactive. Um, but there was also the water that I wasn't expecting. <laughs> I wasn't expecting mm. so much water, um, in terms of, you know, symbolically. Yep. All the emotions were there a hundred percent. My heart was just 
completely sort of broken open the moment that I saw my my daughter's eyes open for the first time. Mm. Still, literally the the most amazing event that I've ever witnessed. Um, but also there's like actual physical water and there's a lot of the egoic self that um, had was challenged by that water. So there's nothing like being spewed on. There's nothing like being pissed on. There's nothing like being shat on or cried <laughs> on to dissolve the self, right? <laughs> oh, my God. Honestly, I, re- <laughs> I remember so many times. Yeah, I just think like, oh, it's your concept of like gross just, just goes out the window. Oh, man. There is this. There was this one time we were at a Thanksgiving dinner um, with my extended family and and we were sitting at the table with uh, my wife and I with my cousin and and her husband and our son and they I think they had two kids I think and yeah my son was was quite little at the time I can't remember um, but he just like spat up like and and my cousin's husband just like reached out his hand and he just like spat up into his hand he's like okay like just like totally he saw what would happen reaches out his hand like all right. I'll go like dump that out. like just like not 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 ruffled at all. And I was I was newer to it. I was like a little bit grossed at it, but like mm. I was just like, yeah, there you go. That's fatherhood right there. That's parenting right there. Just yeah. and absolutely. <laughs> like, I remember some moments of being like, oh, you know, do you need to change your clothes? Like, nah, it's just pee. It's just baby pee. It's fine. I'll just yeah. I'll change later. Let's just let us know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just put a towel on it. We'll go back to sleep. It doesn't, doesn't matter. <laughs> oh yeah. The, the, the liquids are there in, in abundance. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, you know, yeah. like dealing with, with uh, all sorts of bodily fluids. Yep. Mums and dads both. Right. Um, but I think the yeah. way in which uh, I've observed, you know, my partner just being incredibly graceful, um, you know, in that instance and the way in which I found it challenging, you know, myself personally, I'm, I'm recalling, you know, um, Bruce Willis and Arnold Schwarzenegger and all of those kind of, you know, um, fiery masculine people. Kindergarten cop. In, yeah, kindergarten <laughs> cop. Um, you know, they've got they've got a mission and nothing is going to stand in their way of completing that mission. Um, I'm not saying that I wake up every morning trying to save the world, but some mornings I wake up and I've really got to get a load of laundry and and that's my mission. Mm. Yeah. And <laughs> my children will do everything in their power to stop me from that, whether that involves bodily fluids or yeah. not. Um, and developing that sense of grace and even yeah. the instance where your son just popped in to say something, right? The way you yeah. handled that, incredibly graceful, patient, that's what I'm getting as well. A couple of years into the dad journey, it's just shit happens. There's, you have to have contingency plans, but sometimes you've just got to, and just to use another watery metaphor, go, go with the fucking flow, mate. You know yeah. what I mean? You got to go with the flow. That was not me prior to fatherhood. It was, I was very rigid and very um, stubborn. And um, I think that it's because of the exposure to the watery nature of having to relate emotionally, um, of having to slow down and be in the moment with my kids, um, that I'm able to kind of tolerate a little bit more now, those random interruptions where you've got something really <laughs> important and all of a sudden your kid's car sick and just blah, spews everywhere yeah. or what have you, you know, like with really young kids. Mm, that's interesting. You know, I, I certainly relate to having to become more gracious with just so much dramatically less personal and mental space. And <laughs> yeah. uh, before my son was born, I was so militant about meditating like first thing in the morning. Right. Oh, just yeah. like, and I would not do anything else. And just like that, just, that doesn't, that just doesn't happen. <laughs> um, if I get up an hour and a half before him, I can, but I'm also tired. You know how that is. But 
Mm. But I was going to say, actually, for me, I actually feel like as a maybe flowy or a bit scattered person, parenthood has made me become more structured and really have to plan because I can't just, oh, I'll do that later when I have the energy or I'll stay up super late tonight and sleep in on the weekend. I get to actually, when when the fuck is this going to happen? Okay, it's going to happen in this 25-minute chunk right here. And yeah. here's how I'm going to make that happen. And here's how we're going to gonna just yeah, make things work and this sense of someone really depending on you. And then this deepening interdependence with with my partner of that that and negotiating time has been such a thing in our different perceptions and conceptions of time that that we we kind of talk about now that our our time is like a fan it's like a shared bank account that that i have to be really uh i have to be really um disciplined maybe isn't the right word but really use my time really well because if mm. i if i have you know two hours to get some work done and i fuck off in that time then what's going to happen i'm going to stay up late and be exhausted the next day or my partner's going to have to do something longer when she's tired when she has other things to do like there's this sense of of, of really having to steward the the family resources of which time is feels like the time and energy feel like the most precious ones to really to really take that on together in a really reciprocal and responsible and accountable i don't even like the word accountable but in that kind of yeah reciprocal mm. way mutually reciprocal way um forget how i got on talking about that but no yeah. no i think responsibility like reciprocity and, and responsibility and accountability are really important. Um, and I, I dig 100% the whole shared bank account. You've got to be really, you know, strict with your time management. Um, you know, pre like obviously before I was a dad, you know, I used to get up in the morning and uh, and go to the beach and then smoke a joint and listen to podcasts for six yeah. hours before seeing yeah. a few clients in the evening. You know, it was it was wonderful <laughs> times, right? And I often go back there in my head at three in the morning when my kid's screaming. Um, but you know, now if I, if I don't sleep, right, if I'm not eating right, if I'm not sleeping right, um, I'm not the best version of myself when it comes to, uh, you know, dealing with these very young, very sensitive people and, and importantly, the, the sort of co-pilot on the, the parent journey, which is my partner, right? Um, yeah. you know, one of the things that I've noticed as a dad is, is, uh, you know, just a completely, um, revolutionized appreciation of the other. And, mm. and within the context, and I suppose the crucible of the family, yeah, um, you know, that, that sort of relating to others where, you're, where I'm more sort of uh, considerate of them. Um, yeah. I'm more considerate of people because I'm a dad and that's because I've had to kind yes. of really modulate how totally. I am. Because yes. if I was in a grumpy mood before, I'd just bugger off, go for a walk, go for a bike ride, you know, like come right, back. Exactly, right? Yes. You know, do some yoga, meditate, come back all chilled like, out. Whatever you know. the fuck you want. <laughs> exactly. No, no chance, man. You've got to be Zen in 30 seconds or less. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a book you could write. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. Hmm. Yeah. Appreciation of the other. And that kind of, I think this is maybe part of that, that maturing too of, that that mission oriented getting stuff done part has to get stronger and be more effective as well as that oh hey didn't work out no problem be flexible like that those have to kind of upregulate in tandem and that yeah. feels like maybe a, 
a paradox to a to a narrower to an error understanding of how this stuff might work. But I think that that's, that's part of the maturation process as well, that fatherhood bestows upon us or imposes upon us, however we want to look at it. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting kind of challenge to force that transformative um, process within you. Yeah, because there's that, it is, it is a refinement because you have to be both and. Um, you have to be gracious and patient and kind and sensitive and recognize um, a lot more about the broader spectrum of your being, um, while also at the same time being even more structured and disciplined and on occasion super proactive and brave. Yes. You know, there's a lot of really yes. challenging situations <laughs> where bravery for me is called upon and it's not facing down a group of terrorists armed with an M16 and, and a really cool mm -hmm. haircut. Um, it's, it's more so, you know, it's more so just dealing with other parents, um, dealing with other kids, mm -hmm. going to school stuff. My, my, uh, eldest is in kindergarten. It's like preschool, um, okay. over here at the moment. So I have to relate to other dads and, um, mm -hmm. that's interesting as well. There's a common shared experience. It's a trauma bond. I'll be honest, mm -hmm. um, for the most part, but, um, there's also that kind of strange way in which you're sort of forced to socialize. Um, I think a lot of men, the older they get and whether they are child free or, or choose the path of fatherhood, um, there's a kind of isolation that naturally sets in. We're, we're kind of less social as we get older. Um, and so the forced socialising for me is the introduction of a, of a kind of elemental quality that I wasn't entirely familiar with before, which is that airy kind of sociability. Um, that I think, you know, that that's a challenge that I've noticed as well. That's a little bit peculiar. Have you noticed something similar or are you just naturally a sociable chap? That's a really good question. I, I certainly feel some that some of that challenge in in maintaining this, the web of of social connections as, as I get older and as life changes. And I it's kind of a narrative I, I want to push back against that, that there's something inevitable about it or natural. I mean, I do think a lot. I'm not sure how true that is cross-culturally throughout time. I don't know, maybe to some extent. I think, I know in German, they have this word, or I don't know if it's a real word, but Zweisamskeit, like of, like literally means tuliness, like loneliness of a couple, of the two people who become, are like lonely together. And I certainly see some of that in the, the domestic sphere of that the, the family, you know, your partner becomes your best friend and mm. you're, your friends together with other couples and that that can be a bit they can be a bit um just not as dynamic as as our i think our social lives could be mm. and i don't know I, I think i'm certainly a social person by nature i'm also very introverted by nature and you know in my younger days i had time to indulge both plenty of alone time and plenty of yeah of uh of of time in groups and with friends and and so i think maybe what does happen maybe inevitably over time is there's this honing of focus of, you know, what do I, what do I really, really want to put my time and energy toward? And it, it, it demands a certain type of ruthlessness or a certain type of commitment to really, because you can't do it all. You're not going to do it all. So what am I going to do? And, um, like you said, yeah, you go, go and smoke a joint and be on the beach for six hours and then do your work. Newer later, and you know, I so often think, man, if I had the amount of time I had then with the capacity and commitment that I have now, I'd be a superhero. That's, yeah. that's not how it works. Um, because again, that 
that capacity, that clarifying of purpose is part of, is, is honed through having to choose, through being forced to choose your purpose and being forced, this kind of winnowing away of, of things that, yeah, I could take or leave that, but I'll just take it. And mm. sense of, of, of having that purpose and mission. And that's something that I, that I put a lot into myself and that I like to bring to, to men's work is this, um, clarifying purpose because I, I do think that having a having a driving purpose in life is important and I think as parents hmm. it's as much as you know I work with dads and and children and fathers are, are really close to my heart and it's part of my purpose I also think there's something seductive to this idea that your children become your purpose hmm. that can really lead people astray you know men or women or anyone this this um Oh, I'll find my purpose later when my kids are growing up or something like that. And, yeah. and, and it, Carl Jung also, he said something like the greatest burden on children is the unlived lives of their parents. And I come back to that again and again of, I cannot use my son and my family as an excuse for not moving forward with my vocation and my, my Dharma, you might say, or my, whatever my work is in the world. And so to, to kind of, and there's times where the focus is less or time where the focus is more, but to really keep that flame alive um, is really important. And I mean, I think there's another way in which we have these shadow archetypes of, you know, the dad who's at the office all the time and never has time for his family. And mm. not that those men were always or are always doing their life's purpose per se, but they're doing some kind of external work or that's not family oriented um, to provide for the family often. but this this way in which we can maybe swing to the other sense like you know my children are my purpose and my family is my purpose and really i think every person has a purpose probably a you know maybe not a singular this one thing but um an orienting animating um animating energy in life that that you know some people say we would come into that more into as we get into you know over 40 that kind of that kind of thing and there's gonna be something natural to that but but it's easy to lose that thread and i think keeping hold of that thread, helping find that thread for each other is really important. Oh, definitely. Yeah. One of the things that, that sort of happened in tandem with becoming a dad for me, and there's all manner of astrological explanations for why these happened at the same time, um, was that I, I sort of started, um, I came out as an astrologist, so to speak, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So, you know, a couple of years before my first uh, kid came on board, I was, you know, working sort of in a corporate gig and I was seeing clients on the side and that right. had kind of been the way it, it, it had gone for about 20 years beforehand. Um, and then, you know, I decided, oh, fuck it, I'm just going to quit the job and do this full time. And, you know, that was sort of the purpose. And then, you know, in tandem with that, there was the the journey into fatherhood. And one of the most challenging things I think I've found is being able to modulate, um, you know, how I react to those ad hoc demands, right, that just pop up out of nowhere. You know, and the way in which that interferes with what was previously a very structured, very dedicated approach to work as the purpose, mm -hmm. so to speak. Um, but, you know, I mean, right now I'm still, you know, I'm about sort of three and a half, four years into the dad journey. It's I've got my my youngest is 10 months old. So I've got two now. Right, right. Yeah. Two right. is enough. I, I don't plan on having a third. Maybe if I make another batch of Venus talismans, it'll happen again. I'm a bit worried about that. That's what happened last time. Those um, talismans, man. Yeah, mate. <laughs> fuck around and find out with astrological magic. Um, 
but you know, I mean, like I'm not planning on having any more, so it's still pretty new and learning how to kind of, um, recalibrate my approach to masculinity, mm-hmm. fatherhood, etc. is, yeah, it does sort of make the family everything. They're also quite dependent on me, but mm-hmm. sooner or later, um, you know, like my kids are going to get old enough where they just don't want anything to do with me. I'm going to be very uncool, a very cringeworthy, you know, to, to sort of eventually teenage kids. And then I'll have sort of more time to dedicate to the purpose, but also more time as well to kind of relate to my partner without the children being the medium as well. And, and quite often, I think with the journey of, of fatherhood, the journey of masculinity and manhood, um, once the children get old enough to be independent, once the children even leave home, quite often men are, you know, without sort of naming it, um, you know, they're bereft of that, that relatedness and the partner, the, the wife, what have you, um, becomes, you know, sort of like a representation of a lost connection as well. It's really important mm. I've found to keep. Um, you know, and date nights are a thing of the past in my place, mate. Like we just don't have time to get out. But sooner or later we're going to, yeah? Um, and that's what I'm looking forward to. But I'm also like kind of a little bit fearful that in the process of raising two kids, that sense of of sort of closeness that I had with my partner before coming becoming a father is going to be lost as well. And I know that a lot of um, a lot of men sort of have similar experiences too that that end up in, in marriages breaking down, in, in partnerships breaking down once the kid's gone. It's it's um it, it's curious. And I'm wondering if you've you encountered anything like that in your work with with men and with fathers. Mm, yeah, you know, um certainly that was some version of that was the experience with my parents that yeah, their marriage ended when I was 18, my sister was 20, and there's just there's you know there's different elements, but yeah, something of I think my dad thought that okay now we're going to kind of reconnect and this we're going to have this glorious you know that and then my mom was kind of didn't maybe feel like there was much possibility to connect anymore like it just or there was they had drifted apart in the intervening time and Mm. that's probably an oversimplification um but there's certainly there's certainly an element of that and actually what to ask whether i've encountered that as much what actually strikes me is that part of the reason i've oriented so much towards fathers is that so often I found in quote men's work circles, men's groups, I would be the only fucking dad. I'd be the only one. There'd yeah. be 10 or 12 men and one or two dads. I'd be like, what the hell? Like mm. it's, it really dawned on me. This is, you know, I've only been a dad for five years, something like that. So before that I didn't really, didn't really notice. But then I was like, where are all the dads? Where, what the hell is going on here? And yeah. I think, you know, some, they're off being dads. They don't have time to, get together on a Thursday night and, and fair enough. Um, but there's a way in which those types of men's spaces become weirdly warped to a certain, like a, a just missing the this element of fatherhood. And then they, ha- they build a conception of masculinity that's completely off base from, from fatherhood, I think. And which is, um, it's very strange. So yeah, I, I find there's, there'd be almost no father. So it'd be one, one other dad who had a grown up kid or, you know, had a kid he was estranged from a lot of, a lot of men in, in men's spaces that they have, uh, they'd be estranged from their children. If they have older children, that's mm-hmm. a really common story. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think part of my, my work and, you know, I, and I'm new to this working one-on-one with dads. I've only been doing that in the past year or so. Um, but part of what I'm, what I'm wanting to do is just tell a new story of 
of fatherhood and of masculinity and that, Hey, let's start doing this. Let's start doing this quote work, you know, as soon as we become men and doing the work as part of how we become men, let's do that. Let's do it through our twenties and through us. So let's carry the, carry the torch through the, the time of having young children and let's carry it through till our kids are grown up and that they can step into that and, and have, you know, quote, healthy male role models for lack of a better term. But, um, but um, yeah, now that you mention it, there's just not a lot of dads. That's why I'm putting myself out there as someone who, who works with dads, because there's just, there's not a lot. There's, it's very thin on the ground, I think. Um, and I think unpacking how, how fatherhood shapes who we are as men and how being men shapes who we are as parents is, you know, cause of course mothers and fathers, a lot of what we do is the exact same stuff, you know? Mm. Oh, um, yeah. So I think that's, you know, that's this whole, whole other conversation, but really like, how do we, how do we bring this lens of, of masculinity and men's work to fathers? And how do we bring fathers into, into spaces where they're relating in healthy ways with other men? It's, it's not really a thing. I'm trying to yeah. make it thing. <laughs> oh, cr- critically important. Very, very glad that you're you're out there doing this work, mate. That's why I wanted to get you on the show to um to sort of broadcast that you're out there. Um, so what what format does your work take? Like, let's talk nuts yeah. and bolts. Let's just say that I, I rock up there in sunny Canada, yeah. um, or possibly remotely. How do you see yeah. clients? How do you do the stuff? Yeah, do it remotely. Um, yeah. And this again, it's speaking of being thin on the ground, there's not a lot. I was I talked to a guy that I was working with recently and just like there's just there's no like you might have a men's group in New York City or Toronto or something, but you know, one. But the men's group that I was part of for the longest time, like literally there's two guys in Central America, you know, one guy in California, one guy in Alaska, two guys in Canada, one guy, any one guy way out west, and just like that's that's all the men who want to do men's work. And that's an exaggeration. Of course there are I think there are big men's organizations out there. I don't know a lot about what's what's hip and happening these days. Um mm. but but yeah anyway in terms of how how I work with people I like to to it's um do, do an arc of at least a few months of working together, meeting every couple weeks for three to four months and really to just to just orient at first around what's what's kind of going on in that man's life what are the what are the questions because i think usually it's it's someone who's someone who's at some kind of threshold and it could be a big threshold it could be a threshold like you know something external like a big change has happened maybe it's a divorce or something like that but it can also be just an inner sense of oh i'm i'm, I'm something's needing to shift that i'm needing to go to another level in my in my life and in myself and and that's the starting point of, of how do we kind of lighten some of that leaden energy and bring some levity into into that man's life so start off kind of orienting around that and then just through a through a conversation and a series of practices and so i bring in a lot of new thought kind of stuff to really to really hone our yeah hone our thinking and our day-to-day actions into something that's more aligned with with where we want to go and so that that hermetic as above so below i look at my life mm-hmm. what take an inventory of what <clears throat> what's satisfactory and what is not satisfactory and look at what's going on there and make s- small but powerful shifts that over a period of three to four months become noticeable mm-hmm. and and that after that time ideally 
there's a sense of, wow, like, yeah, something shifted. I'm ready now. I'm ready to step into this next phase of my life. And, um, yeah, I, what I'd like to get into at some point too, is like ongoing mentoring with younger men is something I'd love to, to do more of. Um, but that's, that's kind of what, what I'm doing right now is I do look at arc of usually about three months with a man to get from kind of however we define point A to point B and, and bring in some of that permaculture lens too of like, let's, let's look at the overall vitality in this system and where are the, where are the blockages and how can we just, how can we remove some of those blockages and put a little more vitality in here. And, and it's, it's amazing how, how much things can, things can open up very quickly when there's that, when there's that desire. And again, like, you know, I don't have people breaking down the door in hordes because it's not easy. It's not, it's not, um, it's not something that is, um, it's not something that's, that's really sexy or really, oh, that's, um, maybe it is, but I think it is, but that's really, um, yeah, really flashy. It's just a kind of, it's just like work on the self and very, in very subtle ways. Mm. Mm. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and critically important as well, right? I keep coming back to that. Um, you know, difficult, yeah, challenging, yeah, not sexy, yeah. okay, whatevs. Yeah. Um, well, but, and I you think know, also though, yeah. No, 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 please go ahead. Um, yeah, just that, that I, I don't want people to have the impression that it's super grueling either. I think this is also mm. part of the beauty of it is that there's, there's a kind of naturalness to this when we get into the work, there's a naturalness of allowing yourself to be, to be more yourself. And there's a naturalness to this, these processes of transformation, which are already and always underway. So it's not really this, this alchemical thing. It's not whether we want to undergo calcination or dissolution. We are, we are in it, but are we going to be, are we going to be creative agents in that? Or are we going to have the sense that life is happening to us? And that I think is um is really key that that you know man maybe you want you want to be the master of your own fate and you're not in the in that narrow egoic sense but in a deeper way yes absolutely you can be you know at least co-pilot on the journey of your soul and um yeah in sense it's a beauty to be part of that unfolding Oh, definitely. I can, I can a hundred percent see the value. And, you know, paradoxically, it's when we have the least time available to us as in when we become fathers mm -hmm. that we recognize the value of putting time mm -hmm. into something and watching it yes. grow and watching a system develop properly. Um, yes. rather than just sort of deprioritizing the work and, and having your, the lands, the permaculture landscape of your internal self, just be entirely zone three with no zones in there and just <laughs> let it go wild. <laughs> go wild. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Right. And like, I think it's, it's really true that there's, yeah, when you least have the time and energy and I don't know who it was that said, you know, like if you don't have time to meditate for half an hour, you need to meditate for an hour. And I do not <laughs> meditate for an hour or even half an hour every day by any stretch i'm actually not that much of a meditator i uh, i do more different practices but this i this general idea that 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 sense of being overwhelmed and being um is 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 where the need to kind of slow down and and make these gentle but powerful interventions comes through Oh, hundred percent, mate. Look, Curtis, it's been um, phenomenal having you on. This is a, an amazing discussion. We got nice and deep in there. Um, there's all a sorts lot of, fun. of yeah. yeah, a lot of fun, mate. It's just great to talk. And you know, just the the fact that kind of even in the process of talking today, there's a whole bunch of just 
stuff that came up, right, points to the, the critical nature of the work and the importance of the work that you're doing. So how can people get in touch with you, buddy? This is where you get to spook your uh, contact details. How do they, how do they get on right. the fatherhood train? Yeah, find me. Yeah, find me on my website. It's alchemicaldad.com, one word, alchemicaldad, and I have contact info on there. And yeah, I'd love to love to connect and just shoot me a message, have a conversation, and yeah. Perfect. I'll link it in the show notes, folks, so check awesome. it out. And um, yeah, mate, thanks for coming on. This was, this was great. There's so much more we could talk about too. We didn't even sure, touch on sure. permaculture or new thought. And we'll have to have you back on sometime in the future too to sort of get deeper in there. Um, yeah. I, I imagine where you are, it's, um, you know, it's, it's bedtime almost. Oh, there's your, there's your little boy yeah, there. This is my son coming to sit next to me. Hey, buddy. All right, mate. Well, look, I'll let you go. It's only 4.30. We got oh, it's only 4.30. Oh, right. Cool. So <laughs> these times. Like, really? 4.30. God, no. No, no, no. All right. Well, I imagine you've probably got to get yeah. dinner on it's or something. Time, sure. Family time. Yeah. Ah, nice one, mate. Yeah. Nice one, buddy. All right. Well, look, I'll let you go, mate. But thank you so much for coming on. This is really awesome. And guys, make sure you check out alchemicaldad.com. I'll link it in the show notes. Thanks a lot, Matt. All right, Take mate. Ciao. Bye-bye. Bye.